0: Hey Rockheads, stop dusting off the old Commodore and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 508 with guest Corey Haynes, recorded live Monday, November 23rd, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.net controls with first class customer service online at www.telerik.com. And by Grape City Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net simple, powerful and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, The man who just got back from the land of crash and burn. Flicklin.
1: Thank you very much, and welcome back to Dante Rocks. Carl and Richard here for the next hour so. Hey, Richard. Howdy, sir. I'm doing okay. I'm uh, getting my Better Know Framework class here ready for you. Awesome. So, uh, why don't we just get into it? All right. Boy, that music is the weirdest thing that ever came out of my brain. It's one of the strange ones. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. Anyway, I might, I might want to do something else pretty soon. Okay. Or maybe, maybe expand it. Maybe I'll make a CD. There you go. Sounds of .NET rocks. There you go. I'll be a rock star.
2: Yeah, maybe you could do a .NET 4.0 version of Better No Framework.
1: Yeah, well, that's what I'm doing, actually. So speaking of .NET 4.0, uh, let's talk today about system.threading.tasks.task ah. of T result, which represents an asynchronous operation that can return a value.
2: We're hanging out in the parallel task library these days, I've noticed.
1: Yeah, the parallel everything. Yeah, yeah so the the type that you send in is the type that it returns, so this is a an asynchronous thing that passes you this type so you know if you 're using the asynchronous model and you have a um, uh, that the the delegate that happens at the end where you get an a, I, I asynchronous result back right, and you have to look at the object that was passed in uh, the state object, and then do casting and all that kind of stuff well this is This is great because you don't have to do that. So here's the remarks. I'll read the remarks to you like I like to do. Task of task result instances or task of T result instances may be created in a variety of ways. The most common approach is by using the factory property to retrieve a task factory of T result that can be used to create tasks for several purposes. So that's pretty cool. It can also provide constructors that initialize the task but that do not schedule it for execution. For performance reasons, the start new method should be the preferred mechanism for creating and scheduling computational tasks. But for scenarios where creation and scheduling must be separated, the constructors may be using the task's start method, may then be used to schedule the task for execution at a later time. Parallel task library, of course, it was part of the parallel extensions and is now moved into .NET 4.0. So there you go. All right. Stay tuned for more info on that. Richard, who's yakking at us? I got an email,
2: and it is about Coders for Charities. Oh, cool. And it starts out, Dear Carl and Richard and Carl. Good answer. I just spent a great weekend at the first of what I hope to be many St. Louis Coders for Charities weekend. The C4C website is www.c4c-stl.org, like St. Louis. And he also put up a blog post about it, which would be the easier place to go if you want to read more about this. It's at shrinkster.com slash 1BQR, 1 Bravo Quebec Romeo. Hmm. Over 60 people gave up most of their weekend to create or revamp websites, applications, and networks for nine local charities. And that's in St. Louis. A local university allowed us to use their classrooms and computers, software, and I think your Telerik buddies donated some Sitefinity licenses, and hosting were provided free for some of the groups. Nice. The volunteer groups provided quality software that the charities just wouldn't have been able to afford otherwise, and the charity representatives were just thrilled at what we were able to accomplish in just two-plus days. They were excited that we were able to help them more easily and effectively help others. The St. Louis event was based on the Kansas City effort at codersforcharities.org, and it looks like GiveCamp at givecamp.org has organized events in several cities. Thank you guys for all you do in the .NET community, Brian Schroer. You're welcome. And Brian, I'm going to send you a .NET Rocks mug, and we like the idea of Coders for Charities as well, and we're going to be getting more involved with GiveCamps and the like, so you'll hear more about this in the future. In fact, we did a show a while back, if you recall, Carl, I think it was 484.
1: That, yeah uh, uh, that was the um, the website that helps you uh, get uh, give to charities specifically yeah exactly yeah, ar- the around specific projects so uh, hope mongers was the show
2: hope mongers yeah hope good name hope mongers yeah but yes that was uh, so certainly it's always been something on our radar mm-hmm. and uh, we're gonna do more of the same by all means uh, if you send us an email we're going to send you a mug or some other goodie, So send us an email. .net rocks at franklins dot net.
1: And with that, let's introduce Corey Haynes. Corey's been on our show once before. We were out in Sandusky, Ohio, in a blizzard. I remember. It was uh, a <laughs> it was a cold day, and we were inside at uh, at uh, Code Mash. But uh, let me let me tell you about Corey. Corey Haynes has been getting paid to develop software for over 13 years as of this recording. He spent much of his professional career in the Microsoft ecosystem until moving out into the corporate world and joining a small startup doing Ruby on Rails. After leaving that startup, he began a year-long journey, traveling the Midwest and East Coast on a pair-programming tour, spending anywhere from a day to a week at different places, pairing with people in exchange for room and board. While on the road, he has also focused on expanding and defining the message of the software craftsmanship movement as it pertains to both professionalism and career development. Corey has been actively engaged in practicing the extreme programming techniques for developing software for nearly six years. He's been actively following the Behavior-Driven Development Techniques, BDD, since the first rumblings of it in 2005. Lately, he has been actively mentoring others in the BDD workflow as it pertains to -to day-to-day engineering practices such as test-driven development and executable acceptance criteria. Nowadays, Corey's focused on collecting ideas for establishing a craftsmanship-based school of software development in the next three to five years. Welcome to the show, Corey.
3: Hi. (laughs) It's good to be back. It's been uh, almost a year now since Codemash when we last talked.
1: Yeah, and since then, you were you were on the road on this really fascinating pair programming tour.
3: How did that go? You know, it went pretty well. I, I spent the winter and the spring kind of bouncing around the uh, Midwest region, Ohio, and uh, Michigan, Illinois, and then in the summer, I took a three-month road trip from May 3rd to August 3rd and basically drove from Cleveland to Miami up to Prince Edward Island and back to Cleveland and about 6,700 miles in three months and
1: wow. kind of met
3: people, spent, you know, spent up to a week at different places. And it was really great because I got a, got the opportunity to learn from a bunch of people and then take what I had learned from one place and turn around and teach it to the people at the next place.
2: So you were do- doing I, development all along that road trip?
3: Yep. So i drop in and anywhere from a day to a week I would just I would come in and pretty much just start pairing with whoever was there. And uh yeah, so it was it was pretty exciting. I got to see a lot of interesting projects, got to learn a lot of really cool techniques from people and you know, there would be places where I'd spend a week, you know, teaching people kind of how to do test driven development or at least giving them an introduction. You can't really teach it. Yeah. Uh, that well over that short of time, but giving an introduction and kind of jump starting their, um, their practices. And there were other places where I just went in and coded with them, you know, and just had a good time.
2: Well, and I thought you, you actually encapsulated the definition of a journeyman in the yeah. sense that you were literally journeying to improve your craft.
3: Yeah, it was, um, we kind of, you know, set up, got onto that idea of, uh, being kind of that journey after, you know, I've been about 13 years in professionally and, you know, I've got pretty established practices. I've, you know, been doing the way I've been developing software has pretty much been evolving along the same kind of path for the last, I guess, five and a half, almost six years. And it was really a great opportunity to go out, see how other people are doing their development. And, you know, people who are also successful but doing it, you know, slightly different than I am or very different than I am and share with them how I do it and then gain from them what how they do it and sort of mold my own practices And, you know, a lot of people told me that it helped shape their practices to move forward as well. Um, yeah. So, it's been, being on the road, I had my uh, MacBook. And a keyboard and a mouse, and I would come in, and I'd set up, flip open my computer, and we would start pairing.
2: And you weren't being paid for this?
3: No, it was just room and board. Okay. So they they put me up, on, you know, give me usually, almost always I stayed with the person or with um, somebody at the company, and ate with their families. Um, yeah, slept on couches and air mattresses and guest beds and uh, camped a few nights. Sort of uh, enjoyed enjoyed a year of meeting everybody and
1: yeah. Well, I was going to say you must have really. I mean, you always learn something when you're teaching, and I can imagine pair programming just like you did with so many different people at this. You know, in a short span of time, the the, the ideas must have been just. Flying.
3: Oh, yeah. And I, I did a, a pretty consistent video series where I would interview the people that hosted me. And so they're short, usually between, you know, 10 minutes and, well, sometimes they got up to be 40, 50 minutes long, but really letting the people around um, talk about their ideas, talk about some of the things they wanted to get out there into the public. And while I was on the road, there'd be, there were, a, quite a few times where I'd be driving from one city to the other and just my head would be so full of something that I would, you know, I did a few things I called road thoughts where I'd stop by the side of the road, set up my camera and just kind of spout for, you know, usually about 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. And, I, you know, it's up to you to decide what it was I was full of and what I was spouting, but (laughs) (laughs) some people liked it, so...
1: Do you think that uh, that developers learn best this way, one on one, and as opposed to like classroom training? I certainly think so.
3: Oh yeah, absolutely. Because you can really get—I mean, you get that private explanation. So, you know, somebody might pick one thing up very quickly that another person doesn't, and being able to see more advanced techniques and not just the one on one, but actually on the job. So they're not yeah. sitting in a class seeing a contrived example. No matter how good the example is, it's still contrived.
1: Right. It's always but- the example as an afterthought rather than here's the goal. Let's learn what we need to learn in order to do this right.
2: Although yeah. you know, I guess it depends on what you're trying to learn. Any, you know, app specific goal doesn't generalize a problem. You know, you have to have a bunch of generalized goals. I think there's no substitute, for for example, to looking at three or four different development setups, you know, build setups and so forth, before you really get a broad picture of the choices there. Any given project, you're only going to learn one.
3: Absolutely. If you're looking at some, if you're learning to look something, or learn something very specific, like a, how do I do this task? How do I set up this server? Or how do I um, calculate this method or how do I calculate this number or something, then you can explain it to somebody, but something like, say, test-driven development, which is not it's hard to describe it, and it it takes a long time and a lot of going down some dark alleyways before you really get an understanding of it and techniques to do it. If you have somebody sitting there showing you on your project because we always worked on their project, um, it jump-starts it. So it is. I agree that if there is something specific that you're looking to learn, then you can learn it from books or learn it from a class or learn it from looking at a couple objective examples. But more the idea of software development, um, not as just memorizing things, but as a process and as a uh, you know learning abstractions and and learning techniques for developing software; those those are things that, doing give you give you much more uh, benefit than just listening or, you know, small contrived practices. Hmm.
2: And it, it's it's a practice, right? I mean, that's the thing you have to learn by practice: is this set of practices that actually work to make TDD function.
3: Yeah, you you really do need to do it over and over. I've You know, there's something, there's a a kind of a thing that we say that, you know, you start doing TDD, and after about six months, you get it, and then after another year, you realize that you didn't get it, but then you get it, and then another year goes by, and then you finally get it, and then another year, and another year, and you just, it keeps expanding on it, and it's, you just have to keep doing it over and over, and going down a couple dark alleys, making some mistakes over-mocking, under-mocking, you know, writing bad tests, writing fragile tests.
1: Sounds like learning an instrument.
3: Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, uh, it takes about, about as much practice and as much patience as learning an instrument.
2: Well, and like I said, it's just simply practice. I'm just trying to be tolerant of the fact that I, different people learn different ways as well. I got it. I got to think that you encountered folks that picked this up the first day, and others that just didn't get it.
3: Yeah, but there's certain things that pretty much everybody has to, to practice. to I mean, to 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 get good at it, just takes time. It may you may understand some of the basic concepts more quickly than others, but uh, the things that I tend to focus on teaching, like Test-driven development, pair programming, and emergent design, and some of these techniques—you can't really get it without seeing a bunch of examples, and lots of examples, and hard, hard-won examples on your own designs. And it's just a matter of putting in the time.
2: Well, especially when we're talking about the the ideas around uh, TDD, the real benefit comes towards the end of the project anyway. As you need to start, as requirements shift on you, you need to start making mm. changes or major refactorings. I mean, doesn't that actually the point where TDD shines?
3: It, it really is, because it, it's really a design mechanism. Right. And it helps you notice where you have too much coupling. It helps you notice where um, things might be a little bit confusing, where you've got, you know, you're violating maybe single responsibility, and you know that. Further down the line that's gonna come back and bite you. And if you write your test first and write your spec first, you can listen to what they're trying to tell you about your design. So if you find that you the setup is complicated and it takes a lot of you know setting up mocks or it takes a lot of building this object and that object to get yourself into the state where you can write a spec, that's telling you something about your design. And it's time not to go back and figure out how to fix the test, but to go in and look at your design and say, wow, I have seven collaborators that I have to set up before I can write this test. That tells me something that perhaps my class is doing too much or perhaps it's talking to too many people. You know, a common thing is having a mock return another mock, and I'll... Make the disclaimer that I'm going to use the term mock knowing full well that not everything I say is mock. There's also stubs and fakes and all of that, but mm-hmm. it's just easier to use one term. Okay. That if you have mocks returning mocks, you've generally got a law of demeanor violation. And so that tells you right there, boom, there's something I need to look at. And most always, it's worth figuring out how to get past that. You're missing an abstraction, probably when you have locked a meter violation.
2: So you have this sort of test-resistant design. It's an interesting thought that this also very much validates the design you're using on your app, that it's easy to
3: test. Mm-hmm. We, we like to say that if a, if it's hard to test, then it's a bad design.
2: Interesting, yeah.
3: And I've, I've found that over the last however long to be always true. If you write something that is easily testable, then it will come back to benefit you later. But bad in what
2: respect? I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you here, Corey. I'm just thinking, like, Uh what makes it bad at that point? Is it hard to maintain? Like, what is it?
3: It's generally, it's hard to maintain, and that's usually because you have, like, an object doing too much. Right. Or you have an object graph that is really complicated or you have an object over over you know on the left that is reaching through a couple objects to get to another thing. And when it comes time to refactor that, or, add, or not even refactoring, but it's time to add a feature, you've got to look at that and pry things apart. And if you don't have the test, for one thing, it's harder to pry them apart. Now it works. That's just a testing idea. If you have... Very highly decoupled design, then pulling things out and replacing them with other, uh, functionality is generally pretty trivial. And it, you know, it, it goes along with the idea that if you use the, if you abide pretty closely by the solid principle, then your designs become very malleable and you can, you can reach into them and move this object over there and this one over there and there's a, a really good, I won't go into the story, but um, there's a really good article online that was written in the late 90s about um, object-oriented designs, and um, from a, and they used this uh, Star Trek 3 or 4, I think, as an example of why we're doing OO wrong. And it was the one with the invisible Klingon ship, but everybody should go Google that and, and read it, because it was a very interesting thing about being able... To take objects and put them together in new and interesting ways.
2: The invisible Klingon ship.
3: Yeah, I forget which Star Trek it was. I think it was four or three or one of them. (laughs) Okay.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, who bring you the rad control suite for Silverlight. Are you already playing with Silverlight 3? then you might have started using .NET RIA services, rich internet application services, which make data operations a whole lot easier, especially for a line of business applications. So check it out. Our friends at Telerik are again ahead in the game, tapping on the new benefits of Silverlight 3. Their RAD control suite for Silverlight now fully supports .NET RIA services and domain data source. So if you're wondering what's in it for you, the answer is pretty straightforward. You get completely codeless binding to RIA services, impressive validation support on the client and on the server. Your customer will also be pleased to sort, filter, and page data much faster as all data operations are now server-side. Besides, the suite also offers out-of-browser support, and as you might already have heard, the first commercial three D chart. Check out the Teleric Silverlight suite at com slash Silverlight. Don't forget to say thanks for supporting Dot Rocks. Hey, Corey, tell us about this mm-hmm. school that you're thinking of uh, opening here that you want to open. You're gathering ideas for, I guess is your words.
3: Over the last year, I've, you know, as I've been talking to people and, you know, I've had the opportunity to work with people who are just starting in programming and working with people who have been you know developing software longer than I've been alive. And one of the things I've noticed is that we tend to train our train developers into our industry poorly in that there's a couple different paths. Either people learn it on their own, then get shoved into the industry somehow, usually through a corporate job. And Because they've been hacking away for 10 years or so as a teenager, they're put into these positions of responsibility without actually knowing how to develop large-scale software. And the other possibility is they come in, they take a CS degree, learn computer science. You know, they might take a language theory class. And if you only know one language, taking a language theory class doesn't really offer you that much, especially from the perspective of developing software for clients. And it's great if you want to be a computer scientist and go into compiler theory and all of that, but developing software for clients is rarely the time when you have to go and write a compiler right. or write a new language or something. So, the idea is goes along with um, a lot of the companies that are associating themselves with the software craftsmanship movement, which is really focused on apprenticeship and how do you learn effectively and how more importantly than how do you learn effectively, how do you mentor effectively and how do you slowly bring people in with a hands-on training mechanism. And so, the school idea is basically in about three to five years, I want to start this where it is... Um, a small workshop, probably two or three mentors, uh, say four to five, six apprentices, and it's doing real production client work where the apprentices are learning hands-on, side-by-side with the mentors, developing software for the client. And it's kind of patterned a little bit after, like, dental schools and you know, hairstyling schools where you would go and you'd, you'd pay a little bit less and the person would clean a couple of your teeth and they'd call, a per- call the mentor over and the teacher and the teacher would look and, you know, did you clean the tooth okay? And then the person would clean it again. And so the idea is that we would use real client work to teach people what it means to develop software for clients and actually build systems that are high quality. Right. And so it would be, uh, right now, the idea is about a two-year program. And so it wouldn't be training them to hire them back, but it would be training them so that when they come out of this school, they, they have a foundation of solid practices. And then other companies, small consulting shops most likely, would be able to hire them, knowing that they have a just that foundation of solid practices that they can then use and build on to turn these people into sort of their learn their way. Um, so that's kind of the idea. I'm going. My goal is like kind of three to five years to set it up with with a couple people. Um, I'm spending the next the time up until then, you know, talking to people. You know, I get the opportunity to travel around to a lot of conferences to a lot of different places and um, I'm you know basically talking to everybody I can about it so that I can get their ideas. you know what am... I don't want it to be just my ideas come out and this is how I think a school should be, but instead have it you know there's a, there's a whole community out there of people who have really good ideas about what it would take to train people. Um, in there, and I'm partnering. Well, partnering is a, a very, <laughs> is not really the word, but more kind of loosely associating with a few companies that have more formalized apprenticeship programs um, and have been really focused on uh, apprenticeship for a while now. There's a, a guy named Dave Hoover who just published a book on apprenticeship um, by, I think, O'Reilly published it. And uh, so, he has a company, and so I'm doing my best to collect, you know, his opinion. Pretty much anybody who will talk to me hears about my school yeah. idea, and um, and then I hit them up for their ideas. You know, what would what would you expect a school like this to right. talk about?
2: In, instead of doing classwork here, and they've passed all of their classes, they come out of the school with a number of
1: projects they participated in. Yeah. they they built yeah. apps. Yeah, that's great. That's uh, uh geez, I keep coming back to music, but it sounds like my experiences at Berkeley at Berkeley School of Music—you have some classroom things where you're doing theory, but you know the you're you're really getting into labs where you're working with, um, you know, combos, combo groups, and working things out with people.
3: There's a, there'll be a lot of like you know if we happen to be with somebody and notice that they're having trouble understanding, we'll say, what a hash table is. Well, we can sit down and talk to them and explain really the focused information that they need. There will be gaps in their knowledge if you equate it to a standard CS degree, but there'll be very few gaps in their knowledge when you bring when you associate or relate it to developing software for clients. Um, and I'm gonna, I really want to have a strong sense of uh, appreciation of history. So there'll be, there actually will be small curriculums about um, the history of software development. So people will be coming out of the school knowing where all of these ideas came from. You know, because too often we think that we've come up with some idea and there's some new fancy thing in, in, software, and then you look back 30 years and, oh, they were already doing that in the list community, and somehow we lost, there was a disconnect between the people who came before us and the knowledge they had gained and what we are trying to figure out now. And so, I I really want to hit um, a strong history idea as well as the... You know, every month to six weeks, having a special person come in. So it could be, oh, hey, this week we're going to have Ward Cunningham come in for a week, pair with the apprentices, give a couple of seminars, talk to them, answer questions, and give them the opportunity to see what somebody who is really a, a luminary in the industry, you know, who's been doing this. And I mean, Ward's been involved in pretty much Everything that's happened in the past, right? 20, 30 years. So, you know, being able to bring in people, I, you know, there's a handful of people that I consider really masters of software development, like Ward, um, and being able to bring them in to help help train them, so they come out with that understanding and that appreciation. You
2: know. Th- I always looked at computer scientists as the guys who build compilers and things like that and, and, you know, the the stuff that is necessary but is a very different science from the the regular apps we build. Isn't this more of an engineering discipline than anything else?
3: What I'm looking to teach or what uh, the computer science is.
2: Well, I think looking at computing in general, like uh, scientists are necessary and, you know, in every industry there are scientists that sort of create the new science, sort of move ourselves forward in one respect or another. There's computing scientists out there today that are coming up with new core science as well, but the applied side of software development that's actually doing the work, you know, it's funny that we have computer scientists, but we don't have a computing engineering degree.
3: Yeah. I mean, I I agree. There's a need for people who are pushing, you know, doing compiler theory and language theory and all of this. Yes. Um, I mean, I personally, I would love to go back now and get a computer science degree because, I think that I could appreciate, you know, I could really get into some of the things. I've got enough experience now. I've seen enough different types of languages. I've worked in different, you know, systems to be able to go back and appreciate a lot of the stuff that they teach. But the computer science part of it, like you're saying, there's applied and then there's more of the theoretical. Yeah. And to understand the theoretical, I think you need more experience than having spent some time as a teenager writing, you know, hacking away at some open source projects, which is a wonderful thing to do, but it doesn't it doesn't provide you with a with enough experience, I think.
2: Well and by the same token, I think it's bad both ways. Like that's now valuable to you with all that experience. But I also think it's tough on the kid to come out with that experience and find out that out here in the world where we're building software, that's really not that important.
3: Yeah, it's it's not really that important and it, and it 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 does them a disservice because they come out thinking that they understand and know more than they actually do and I'm not saying everybody but but there's there's a lot of a lot of people who enter in and you know they've got four or five years of experience and they're just convinced that they've you know got it all worked out and I mean there's people out there who You know, I was just at um, RubyConf, which is the annual Ruby Conference, and I was hosting this Programming with the Stars competition. It's a a fun lunchtime entertainment. And Jim Wyrick was one of the, you know, the stars and one of the pairs. This guy's been doing it longer than, I think I asked how many people in there were under, you know, 25 or 26. And there was a good third of them, probably, who raised their hand. I'm like, this guy's been programming professionally longer than you've been alive. Right. <laughs> and you, you, you know, I mean, I, I've spent, um, you know, a reasonable amount of time with Uncle Bob. And, you know, he's been doing it professionally for 40 years. That's longer than I've been alive. Right. And there's a tremendous amount of experience, you know, and these guys are still actively you know, I when I'm with Uncle Bob, any time there's like a half an hour, forty five minutes, his laptop flips open and he started coding. And it's 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 he's every day reading code and trying out new things and learning new things and it's it's amazing his understanding of just that basic abstraction that you know, sometimes I see, sometimes I don't.
1: There's a, there's an old proverb and I don't know where it started, but it's something like, He who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Avoid him. He who <laughs> knows not and knows that he knows not is a student. Teach him. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep. Wake him. He who knows and knows that he knows is a wise man. Follow him.
3: It's a probably a pretty good, pretty good thing to live by.
1: But I, I just tend to think that, um, you know, people who profess to, you know, be experts and usually who talk the loudest are the are the ones you have to be wary of the most.
3: You do have Not to be always. wary of them. It's a gross
1: exaggeration. It's a gross, you know, generalization. But I've found it to be true so many times.
3: It is true, and that's why a lot of it is, you know, the proof's in the pudding. Right. If you, if you aren't, so here's an example. I'm, you know, I consider myself a reasonably experienced developer. I'm not, you know, super developer. I'm not the greatest developer that was ever out there. I've got, you know, a bit of experience. I've written some reasonable systems in my lifetime. But I meet people who just blow me away. They've got, you know, so much more experience and they see things that I don't see them um and it, it's it's a really it's a really great thing and knowing that um oh I know what I was going to say was that I've you know I've spent the past year traveling around doing you know a, a day to a week both training with people and training people and I've said through the whole way that you know it's, it's all fine and dandy to do this but if you don't periodically just buckle down and deliver software, then you don't deserve credibility. So, for example, I, you know, if I kept doing this for years and years and years and never actually elevated anything to production, then, you know, it it starts to become suspect. There's different ways to elevate into production. I know people who are publishing, you know, really significant kind of computer science-y things which, you know, is on a different level. I don't do that sort of thing, but, you know, so I always vowed that, you know, at least like once a year I'd spend a while actually building something, putting it into production, you know, making sure that I don't lose those chops. Yeah. You know, that's an important thing when you look at the people who are loudmouthed, and I'm a tremendous loudmouth.
1: Oh, come on. No, you're not a loudmouth. You're about as humble as they get, Corey. Come on. Well,
3: well, I'm loud. and uh, uh, Loudly humble. <laughs> well.
1: <laughs> hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output, give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com.
2: I do feel the risk that you have, because moving from project to project like you've done, you know, you, you only spend a day or as much as a week with a project. It's almost like you get up to speed and then you go. You never are at the end of it. You actually never actually ship.
3: Yeah, not at all. It's very much going in and you know improving the improving the product somehow in some way either through you know teaching the people how to do BDD effectively or just going in there and refactoring code or just writing you know a new feature. But yeah, there's no you don't have time to actually take something from start to finish.
2: Right. But you get this burst of value. It's the old Pareto's Law thing that you get this 80% value for 20% effort stuff because you've only got that short amount of time. So you you catch a nugget and, and drop it out in a very valuable net brief amount of time. But I'd say that yeah. you know, the guys I know that really ship software, and honestly, I've not shipped software long enough now that I don't feel like I'm qualified to ship software anymore. They're the guys mm-hmm. who focus on the 20%, that hard yeah. effort to finish the last bit. That's the hard part of software development.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, you know, but I, I mean, I do. I go in and generally, because I'm only there for a few days, people would, you know, they would take a certain problem or they want to, you know, show us how to do, you know, I had one guy who I was there for a week and we spent the whole week basically just doing sort of the BDD workflows that I use, which is kind of from Cucumber to RSpec to, Uh, Ruby, and we spent a few days doing that and just kind of fiddling around on the app he was working on, and then we took a day, the last day I was there, and just cranked out this app. I mean, it was a a small application, but we just cranked it out in a day using the whole practice, and he was just, I mean, he, he was astounded because he didn't believe that you could actually be productive doing the full BDV workflow because, you know, oh, well, you've got to write Cucumber and you've got to write rspec and, you know, go all the way through. But we got this thing done in a day.
2: But it took a couple of days of prep to get to that point.
3: Well, it took a couple of days of practicing the workflow. Right. We didn't, we didn't have any of the code for this app written before, but practicing the workflow of how do you go from you know, a a high level uh, scenario down to a low level isolation test into your production code, um, but that you know even that it was a small app. Yeah. So it's not, um, you know, it 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 delivers a little bit, but it gave that like you said that very very directed value, which was you wanted to learn, you know, get a basis for doing. The BDD workflow, yeah. and that you know that was good. So you know now I'm actually spending a couple months uh, contracting, building you know actually building an app, <laughs> building applications to elevate and stuff to um, get back in, and it's it's kind of a breath of fresh air to be cranking out story cards and you know seeing them move to finished and elevated to production, and that's a lot of fun.
2: I've spent time as a consultant. Which is lots of fun because you parachute in for a week, parachute back out again. And then after a while of doing that, you miss owning the code. Yeah like you get that craving to i want to own something again and uh it's a, and then you go you you get back into owning a project and delivering on it and making new versions and that plan of this won't go in this version it'll go in the next one it'll be having a picture of you know the next three versions of an app i love that it's exciting I, but it's a different relationship to the app entirely i,
1: I always have to have a p- code project going otherwise you know I, I really do and just for me always got something yeah. on the burner Something just beyond yeah. what I'm capable of, too.
3: <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny because I, I have a tremendous amount of open source commits, but very few of them actually have my name on them. So I'm always kind of working on something, you know, with a, you know, adding to a project I contribute a, uh, here and there to RSpec and to Cucumber and to a couple other things, and... It's funny because a lot of times I'll be pairing on it with somebody else who is a uh, actually contributes much more than I do. So we just push it in under their name. It's kind of fun. Um, But yeah, I always have some little some little project that I'm working on. um, You know, usually on my computer somewhere, and I do a lot of I do a lot of deleting of code. So I'll write something and you know get write a little application of some sort and just delete it just for the practice of, of writing the app.
1: So, so Corey, I notice you're doing these KataCasts now. What is that all about?
3: Um, the Kata Cast came about um, uh, Dave Thomas of the Pragmatic Programmers uh, brought up a, a while ago this idea of code Kata's, which were at the time little problems to solve, to sort of practice your mind, practice your coding, um, practice your problem solving. And over the years we kind of have kind of evolved into the idea of solutions to practice. So here's a you know, changing uh one of my favorites is changing integers into their uh LED equivalent. So like an old calculator with the eight bars. And it's a it's a set of movements almost where you are practicing the Solution: Practicing the code necessary to do this over and over and over again until you're not even thinking about it. And we would we we started doing this a while ago, learning you know getting it so that if you you know it's sort of like doing scales on a on a guitar or on a, a piano or something. And last year, I think it was uh, Micah Martin, who is. I don't know, multi-black belt in in some martial arts. I don't know exactly which one, but he brought out the idea that in the martial arts, katas are not just about the motion, and they're not just about memorizing these motions, but they're about performance as well and about getting feedback from people and showing others that you've memorized these motions because they can then give you... They can both give you feedback as well as learn from some of the subtleties that you have. And so what we did was we started recording these, recording the practices. Roy Asheroff, I hope I'm pronouncing his name right, mm-hmm. also has one that he pushes out a lot, which is a string calculator, and he gets people to practice it. Um, and so we started screencasting these, and we set up a series called Codicast, and we're me and a guy named Enrique Comba. He works at a company called Eden mm-hmm. Development in the UK. and. We're starting to record these. Every week, we're putting one out. We set it to classical music, hmm. so there's no actual commentary to it. It's just watching the code come out and the, the solution take shape. Hmm. And it's a lot of fun, and the interesting thing is that it, it almost feels like an art form when you're watching it, because it's it's got this nice music. You're watching code go through one of my friends who was watching one of them and he and I have very similar styles and he was saying that that he you know he was watching how I was solving the problem and you know everything was being normal and then there was this point that was just jarring to him because it was completely different than what he was expecting but he said it was it was great to just have that silence well not the silence but the music going on and wondering why did you do it that way and it made him start to think about different ways that he might solve it. And so we've, and, we, and because they're not really problems to solve, it's not about the solving of the problem, but about the practicing of the solution and the techniques in there, and getting the, you know, the TDD flow of write an example, write the code, write an example, write the code. It it really brings you into that. And we've had people say that. Um, they're great to watch for just learning new tricks, learning new techniques, seeing, you know, everybody reads about TDD or hears about TDD, but there's ones up there that are very interesting to watch what a real-world TDD looks like. And just this week, so at the time of the recording, this week, uh, Uncle Bob put one up, his uh, Prime Factors Kata, he put up, so we're, we're going to have guests. Performers as well be doing screencasts too, so that's that seems to be catching on. We've got a lot of people uh, watching them and uh, commenting on them, so that's pretty exciting.
1: Nice music too. 1812 Overture is your first one, yeah. LCD, to... <laughs> yeah. The
3: 1812 Overture is fun, and it's nice to see like the music rises. Yeah, and there's certain things in the code, and you can kind of it. It, it really does have a nice yeah. uh, link between the two.
1: It really is very cool. And and some you know from from way off on the right side of the brain too. I love it, you know. Yeah, it's just very cool, very very cool. But
2: it is interesting to not have commentary around it. Like, but there is the abstract of what this kata is going to be about, right? So people oh, yeah. aren't they don't have to figure out what the app does while they're watching it.
1: And they're simple. Like this, the first one uh, you posted was I think it was the first one was uh, converting a number to its LCD equivalent.
3: Yeah, so they're very small, very small solutions so that you can, it's with a very, the next one that I posted was um, a code breaker marking algorithm, so kind of like that mastermind game where you have a couple colors and somebody guesses a color and how many are in the right position and how many are just the same color. It's a fair, it, they're small things that people can understand, so you don't have to have a lot of commentary about where you're going. And... Another thing that I for a lot of the Katas, what we do is we create um, uh, Git repositories, and we host them on GitHub uh, one, with one branch having the uh, acceptance criteria, and another branch having the textual list of examples, and then another branch with the examples actually written out, and so you can choose to... Uh, bring down the Git repository and start with actual implemented examples and start running those and getting those passing. Or you can start with the names. And so you can take that and and practice writing examples. Or you can start at the high-level acceptance criteria and start running those and trying to get those passing by writing examples and then writing code. So they come with sort of packaged practice mechanisms too so other people can do them
1: it's very cool well I, I keep my I hope you keep them up um, It's a, a very interesting to watch and certainly unique
3: yeah you know, we're hoping to uh, hoping to keep doing them for a while they take they take about four or five six hours on the low side to do yeah you know to practice them and you know it's usually we spend a week or two really practicing them to try to get them to that point where you can perform them with minimal, if any, uh, hangups. So, yeah, we're hoping and we're always looking for, you know, guest performers. We, uh, right now, you know, I, I tend to do Ruby, uh, right now. Um, Enrique does as well. So, we're always looking. It doesn't, it's not just a Ruby thing, so. You know, it'd be great. I know that a few people have been posting screencasts doing uh, different katas in C Sharp, which is always nice to see. It's, it's interesting to see the same solution in different languages and different, uh, you yeah,
2: know, That's a great idea to, to take a given problem and see two or three or four different renditions of it.
3: Yeah. I have a friend who is doing a closure. And he's doing that professionally and so he's was he's he's working on a kata enclosure to uh, put up there as well. So it'll nice. be interesting to see that one.
1: You think it's a good idea to do katas in all sorts of different languages, even if you're not actively programming in them?
3: Um, I think it's a good idea. I mean I've done I've used it to learn other languages. When I was just learning Ruby, I did KATAs in Ruby before I was really using it or knew it. And it's always great to know how another language solved the problem. You know, if you're going to do it, don't do, you know, if you're a C-sharp programmer and that's your active language, don't do a kata in Java. Do a kata in, you know, Scala or Clojure or Ruby or Python or, you know, go crazy and solve the kata in XSLT.
1: Oh, don't do that for crying out loud. Or something...
3: Do that, do that. (laughs) No, no, don't do it. (laughs) Don't listen to him. (laughs) Don't listen to me. But (laughs) it's interesting because it it expands your mind by doing it in a different, in an actual different language. Sure. You know, a different language family. Sure.
1: Well, um, we're coming down to the end of the show. Is there any last minute things you want to talk about before we wrap up?
3: Nope, I think that's about uh, about good. It's been a fun time talking to you guys.
1: Always a good time talking to you, Corey.
3: Yeah, and uh, I'll say hello to everybody that I've paired with and all the people that I, uh, all my friends out there. So I guess I'll say goodbye to you guys.
1: And coreyhaines.com, C-O-R-E-Y-H-A-I-N-E-S.com. Yep. Thanks, Corey.
3: Thanks a lot, you guys.
1: And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.